and welcome to the Eastern Front. On our podcast, we talk about the challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along a line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. Our special guest today is Radosław Sikorski, Member of European Parliament from Poland, former Defence Minister of the Republic of Poland, former Foreign Minister of the Republic of Poland and former Speaker of Parliament of Poland. It's great to have you again and welcome. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Radek, uh, always a pleasure to have you back. There are lots of different things we could talk about, but caught my attention was your really clear-eyed piece in the Foreign Affairs magazine where you touch on this perennial question of European strategic autonomy, on Europeans doing enough for their defenses, on, on European strategic thinking and the sort of positioning of, of the European comp- uh, continent in this emerging power competition between uh, the United States and China. And you make lots of non-trivial observations and, 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 and claims about, about this, this upcoming um, dynamic, but perhaps to start from the basics, you identify a number of related obstacles to, to Europe acting as a as a unitary actor on the global stage, from from institutional ones through financial ones to to the fact that European countries just see their strategic environments very differently. And a very basic question I want to start with is, you know, how much of that has changed as a result of of Russia's war? Uh, against Ukraine. Well, first of all, thank you for the invitation to the show. I'd just like to add that uh, in addition to all these illustrious posts, I was also a a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, uh, I'm very proud of that. But um, to answer your question, you know, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has meant that Ukraine has done better than we expected. From our perspective, the United States has done much better for Europe than Europe has expected. Europe has done much better for Ukraine than, than I expected. And Russia has done much worse on all counts. So in a sense, You might think there is no cause for alarm because whereas Putin's intentions have proven to be as bad as some of us anticipated, his capabilities are less. But my argument in the foreign affairs piece that you refer to is that we were lucky for once. Number one, um, having Joe Biden in the White House. And number two, the US not yet engaged in the Pacific and the Far East. And we cannot, we as Europeans cannot count on our our luck to persist. So we need to imagine what happens if we have a return, um, maybe not to Mr. Trump, but someone like Trump, to an isolationist uh, uh, US president, or even a US president who mismanages your relationship with uh, China and you get a a, a kinetic confrontation, and then all America's resources are devoted to that. And then then I pose the hypothesis that that would consume Washington's bandwidth and resources, and Europe would be pretty uh, defenseless. Therefore, Europe should start pulling its weight on defense much more than hitherto to be able to share the burden uh, more fairly with the United States and... um, 
to be able to deter Putin or a future Putin, even if America is otherwise engaged. Almost as if we were touching on a, on a, on a paradox here, because um, Putin's failure in Ukraine, you know, welcome as it is, does not necessarily help to break this, this, this overarching sense of complacency that for so long has characterized Europe's strategic thinking. When you go back to late February last year and the Zeitenwende speech, one almost feels like that speech was predicated on the assumption that things will go badly for the Ukrainians. Now we are, you know, 500 days later in, in that war, it is pretty clear that Ukraine will not be overrun by the Russians. And I think there is a constituency for, you know, business as usual and, 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 and kind of a, you know, complacent muddling through that, that you that you that you partly describe in the piece. Or, or do you think that actually that complacency has been sort of broken for, 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 for the good and it's up to you and, and your colleagues in, in European politics to, to build a, a, a new, much more forward looking and much more sort of assertive foreign policy policy consensus? First of all, I think complacency, complacency doesn't quite describe it. It was, in addition, greed to do business, uh, very lucrative business with Russia in, in terms of gas and oil and a few other things, and also a, a, a patronizing attitude to Central Europe and to our security concerns. Um, uh, some key players in Europe were quite willing to sacrifice our vital security interests for their profits. But there is now pressure from below. Uh, the sight of Russian rockets hitting residential areas of recognizably European towns and cities um, has woken up the uh, European electorate. And if you um, look at the uh, polling numbers, Europeans overwhelmingly demand of their politicians to spend more on defense, and in particular, to create a European defense worthy of its name. Whether the politicians and the member states of the EU actually get their act together is still not clear. But the metrics are easy, because, as you know, um, defense is very, very expensive. So just follow the money. Um, uh, defense budgets have started to rise. We have created a European defense budget. We have bought arms for Ukraine for the first time. This was unimaginable two years ago. We've actually spent our entire seven-year allocation in the defense budget, which is wonderfully called um, the peace facility. <laughs> <laughs> peace through strength, Haddock. Peace through strength. That's right. <laughs> but that's fine. That's fine. Um, if it hadn't been for the pandemic, it would have been double. Um, but we need to fund, find the money for defense. And we've already started looking for 50 billion for Ukraine for three uh, years. One thing I have to mention uh, to our American listeners, this is important because, I, um, because of the difference in our constitutions. So when you assess the American uh, contribution, you only need to see what Washington gives Ukraine. And it's roughly 70 billion so far. When you ass assess the European constitution, uh, contribution, we are a confederation, not a federation. So you have to add up what Brussels gives to what member states give. And then it's roughly the same, also seven, uh, around 70 billion. Plus, we are adding on this, this extra facility. Um, so actually, financially, we are doing well. We, we need to restart our production lines 
of uh, uh, ammunition and of uh, defensive equipment. This is starting way too late, but it is now starting. I hope we can return to this question of uh, European defense industry, but just a couple other quick points, Radak. In calculating the contribution, and it's impossible to put uh, you know a dollar sign on this, the, the uh, accommodation of refugees across Eastern Europe, you know, that is arguably you know, even more disruptive than the financial cost or the armaments cost. But I do want to, before we go down those roads, uh, go back a bit and ask you whether you think uh, the solidarity across Eastern Europe is as firm as we would like it to be, and, and maybe it needs to be, back in the earliest rounds of NATO accession. And it was a reasonable decision to sort of postpone membership for Ukraine and Georgia back in the day, but the Polish government was at the table when that happened. And we, we still, I'm wondering, you know, it seems very important to me that, that the alliance solidifies its position in Romania, that you know, Transnistria and Moldova is uh, is brought in, and that we get back on a a road that includes not only membership for Ukraine but for for Georgia. That that Europe is the dream of Europe whole and free is really fulfilled as as it should be. You know, what say are um, Polish attitudes about Southeast Europe and the willingness you know beyond Ukraine? To uh, to weave together a coherent alliance. Well, there are several there are several things here. Um, it's a fascinating um, counterfactual uh, as to what would have happened if we'd given the membership action plan to Ukraine and Georgia at the NATO summit in Bucharest. I was there in the room and doing actual arguing. Um, um, George Bush personally thanked me out, and uh, Condi Rice acknowledges it in her memoirs. Um, what we gave uh, Ukraine and Georgia is a legal guarantee that they would one day become uh, NATO members. It says so in the communique, uh, but without the membership action plan. And the, you could argue it both ways, actually. I, my feeling is that there is nothing more dangerous than to give people uh, security guarantees that are not credible. So if we'd given them membership action plan and membership and then not actually defended them, then NATO itself might have been in danger of, um, uh, of, of, of the solution, actually. Whereas, would Putin have been deterred with a kind of political rather than military membership for those two countries? We will never know. As regards uh, Eastern Europe, well, there is the Bucharest Nine, uh, the countries, the group of countries that really feel threatened by Russia. And those you can count on because for them it's existential. You know, the, the, as I point out in, in, the, in the foreign affairs piece, um, the level of security across the European continent is very uneven. You know, in your country, Texas and uh, Washington state are equally safe because neither Canada nor Mexico are likely to invade the United States anytime soon. Whereas the level of security vis-a-vis -vis Russia in Estonia and Portugal is radically different, right? So that's another. And of course, the outlier in this is Hungary. And you tell me why so, you know, do they have a secret deal? With... No, though Hungary is included in Bucharest 9. Right? Sure, but they delay every package of sanctions. They say weird things. They visit Belarus. They are... Uh, 
uh, they always they they still have they still buy Russian oil, they uh, refuse the passage of arms for Ukraine and so on. I mean, clearly, uh, Orbán's heart and uh, and politics is not in it. Hungary hasn't even ratified uh, Swedish uh, membership in NATO yet. So uh, so I'm afraid something weird is going on there. And the foreign minister has a medal from Putin. You know, if Russia loses this war, then clearly Transnistria is something to be sorted out, probably by the Ukrainians, uh, with a request from Moldova. Uh, but we shouldn't have a, a gangster statelet uh, on the very border, or, or you might actually argue inside our security perimeter. Uh, but, you know, Russia hasn't lost yet. I mean, <laughs> at the moment, it's still Russia occupying Ukrainian land, not vice versa. Uh, Radek... Poland's rearmament has been really quite striking. You know, just recently you received the first shipments of M1 Abrams tanks, but you're also buying uh, Korean tanks, which are quite good, uh, sort of M1 derivatives. And I wonder uh, whether, you know, how it, I do believe it's important for all alliance members to really get its uh, Defense Industrial Act together. But in the past, that has meant going at the speed of and the pace of Western European industry, which strikes me is not up to the, you know, they're a long way from being able to uh, regenerate the, even the capacity they have. If we look at joint European programs over the last several generations, uh, it's been a huge expense that's produced almost nothing. The 100 billion that the Germans are pledging, something like half of it is just to replenish uh, ammunition stocks. Right, right. So um, and they're going to build a factory for the fuselage for F-35s. And so whatever they produce, that would be great. We must but go I back to the old system of paying companies just for maintaining production lines. Correct. It's a good question how to organize this sort of across the Western world to include Korea and Japan and Australia and others, because not even the American defense industrial base is capable of getting us to where we need to go in the time available. So you you raised the you pushed the button on, uh, on for me. I'm just wondering how you think about it and whether you have any solutions for trying to, to do this within, you know, uh, in a way where the frontline states of Eastern Europe play a larger role, play a larger defense industrial role, both as kind of a motivator for other uh, seriously concerned uh, and like-minded states, but also perhaps step into the role that the French and the Germans used to play in the past. I don't see any reason why... Uh, Poles couldn't build tanks or, you know, um, you know, or couldn't, again, couldn't play a major role. We used to. Uh, we used to have three and a half thousand tanks and an almost half a million men army. Um, but I, I mean, I support Poland's uh, raise of its defense spending from 2% of GDP. And we have a super law that guarantees the, the military 2%. And so we've been spending a consistent 2% for the last 15 years. Haphazardly. And it's now gone yeah. through three. I'm a little concerned that the contracts are being signed very, apparently quite hastily, and Poland is just sucking up everything that is available on the international market. One wonders whether 
the industrial opportunities uh, to do with that are being fully utilized. Um, uh, but, but time is of the essence, so I, I'm not going to criticize that. Um, uh, only the United States ha can have a full spectrum um, defense industry on the Western side. You know, everybody else has to find niches. Uh, Poland makes perfectly good drones. Uh, 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 Ukrainians seem to uh, appreciate our handheld um, anti-aircraft missiles. Uh, we make some uh, good howitzers, good APCs. Um, uh, the uh, European Defense Agency has these 40 programs that are supposed to pool resources in creating these, these future uh, systems. Uh, so that we don't have to choose between nas current national producers, right? But it's all glacial, you know. It's I'm frustrated because you know we've been at it for more than a decade, and none of these systems has yet been deployed. Um, and when you have a war on your on your doorstep, um, you know some of these procedures should be st streamlined. Every defense industry, uh, every country that I know of has a proviso for urgent operational needs. What's a more urgent operational need than a war on your doorstep? So then you point, going back to your European Affairs article, to a paradox. So let me ask you the leadership question. On the one hand, um, you and we do it regularly on this podcast, lament the role of Germany and how slow they've been to do their Zeitenwende. And on the other hand, you point out that there is a history, a recent history of European powers um, taking matters, including foreign policy of the EU into their own hands. And then it doesn't end well, such as Minsk one and Minsk two. And so with this dilemma in mind and what you point out that we are not a federation, but a confederation, can we can we de develop common foreign EU, common foreign and security policy and defense policy specifically without leadership, without national leadership? Um, because on the other hand, we do not have, and I don't think we will anytime soon, have a national leader that is recognized by everyone and doing a great job. It cannot be Germany, as you point out. It cannot be France. As we know, it also does not have... Oh, wait a second. I mean, Germany is a quarter of the European economy. France has a diplomatic and bureaucratic culture that is still strategic and global. Uh, of course, they should make very important inputs into this. And we, or, we have already pledged ourselves to have foreign policy and defense policy in common. I signed the Lisbon Treaty in 2007. Read it. Article 25. It is, in, it is explicit. It's just that mem some member states are in right. breach of the treaty. But, but they have, but they yeah, have but been they particularly Germany they and France in so many recent in, um, uh, uh, examples. And so how do we then go forward to consolidate where we're still lacking? Yes, we have a Central and Eastern European higher threat perception of Russia. It's not shared in Spain and Portugal due to historic and geographic um, uh, reason. But they agree that Putin is a bad guy who needs to be Absolutely. stopped. Absolutely. Everyone across the West agrees, right, with a weird exception of Orban. Um, but how do we then get 
the EU as a whole to internalize the reality that we've been hiding from over the last two decades, that war might be inevitable within the EU, but it's very um, present at the borders. Within the EU, it's... No, 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 wait a second. War within the EU is unthinkable. That is the greatest achievement of European integration. War outside the, on the, on the EU periphery is not only thinkable, it's both in the South and particularly in the East, it's, it's a reality. And European politicians need to be scared sufficiently to do the, to do the right thing. And I'm not sure they, they are there yet. So if it's not a full-scale invasion and it's not the, the Balkan Wars and it wasn't Georgia and it wasn't Ukraine in 2014, how can we get there? Well, my question exactly, which I've asked on numerous occasions here in the debating chamber, what disaster will it take for you to start taking defense seriously? And I thought the war in Ukraine would be sufficient, and, and hopefully it still will be, but it's, it's frustratingly slow. But is it then a matter of finding individual, is it a matter of leadership that we're still, that we haven't managed to convince about a common threat perception across the EU? Or is it something else you think? Well, leadership matters. And uh, next year we have a European election and then a new commission. And we'll see what kind of people they choose. You know, if they choose another set of multilateral men, then you know that they're not serious. Uh, and if they choose people who, uh, you know, who will tell them what, what needs to be done, then there is hope. If, if I may, so, so this, this, this idea of, 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 of the necessi necessity of, of common threat perception strikes me as being somewhat overrated in, in the following sense. So you, Radek, you wrote some time ago in the in the post this piece on the transatlantic relations where you made the point that that Poland decided to join the US effort in Iraq not because Warsaw would be scared of the prospect of you know Saddam Hussein acquiring chemical weapons but simply to signal that Poland was serious about its role in the alliance and and and, and its reliance on the and United also States. as an investment in the yeah. Polish American exactly uh, alliance. And so, you know, we feel your pain. We hope that you will feel ours. So, so, so in, in a similar vein, when you look at the French peacekeeping operations in Mali, the Czech Republic was the largest non-French contributor to those efforts. Again, it wasn't because the Czechs would be particularly preoccupied by Mali, but, but because they thought it was worth their while to invest in this relationship. So, 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 I, so I don't think the difference in threat perceptions is necessarily a barrier uh, to deeper European cooperation, but it's rather, I mean, the, the, the sort of lack of trust. I mean, the fact that there are countries that, that feel that they've been sort of uh, let down by others uh, repeatedly. And, and there needs yes, to be... Yes, but also, you know, some people don't see the opportunity. Let's remember that as the West, we are pretty demoralized. We screwed up in Iraq. Uh, Arab Spring has been a disappointment. Uh, we made the bet that China would liberalize its, its uh, economy and hopefully politics. That didn't happen. We made a bet that Russia would civilize. That hasn't happened. Um, democracy and the West uh, are not on the, on, on the go. And I think victory in Ukraine would um, restore our morale and also send a very powerful message that democracy should not be underrated. Conversely, though, Radek, I think you're quite right to say that the stakes in Ukraine are qualitatively different than the other fiascos that you had mentioned. So, yes, victory in Ukraine 
could jumpstart the revitalization of the West and the democratic process in the world. Conversely, a defeat or, you know, really something that, you know, a, a sort of stalemate that leaves Russia in the game uh, and possibly even that, that middle solution is, is almost worse than, uh, than the, the other. To, to have failed to respond adequately, which is, I, I think, still an open question, would, would, I think, be such a catastrophe for American leadership in the world, for European peace and solidarity, for the cause of liberalism. I have a slightly different view. Uh, slightly on the planet. That I, all right, well, I, I'm, I'm just trying I to tee you up. That's all. Uh, this uh, this uh, crazy war has accelerated Russia's decline. So even if Russia uh, holds on to some Ukrainian territory, its own decline will continue because we will then not raise uh, sanctions and Russia will become a, a less and less uh, valuable or, or, or powerful vassal of China. And that's terrible for Russia. Actually, well, not But that Russia could survive as, as that, or at least the, the yeah, elite and, you know, the, the Putin satrapy could continue. Sure. But, you know, when you look at the uh, history of colonial wars by Western powers, they are usually ended by a different team that started them. And therefore, um, defeat in Ukraine probably means a change of team in Russia. And that team could take a different view about Russia's alignment. Um, uh, Zbigniew Zhezinski, my friend and mentor, used to say that uh, the strategic choice for Russia is either to be an ally of the West or a vassal of China. Well, Putin made the wrong choice. And many Russian patriots uh, recognize that he chose his own personal interest rather than the strategic interest of Russia. And they could possibly reverse it, which would be important. So with this view, which is kind of medium to long term, unless we have another 24 hours this time successful mutiny, um, we are now just a day or two before the Vilnius summit. What do you expect with your experience from 2008? What do you expect to happen or not to happen um, at the summit um, of NATO with regards to Ukraine? I expect many good practical things for Ukraine. I don't expect them to issue a formal invitation to, to join NATO, but they, Ukraine will be given serious assurances but I think the German view will probably prevail that NATO membership should be part of some kind of peace package. Because the actual red line of Western publics is that we don't want a direct clash between NATO troops and Russia, which I think is correct. And if we gave Ukraine NATO membership now, that's what that would mean. So we will uh, uh, help Ukraine win. Uh, I fear that we didn't give them enough to win this year. And, and with the hope of uh, Western integration, both res regards as, uh, the EU and NATO uh, in due course. So uh, Ukraine is, is, should take encouragement from that because um, you know, EU, the promise of EU membership being a candidate and then hopefully opening negotiations in December, that's, the, that's a big deal. And it's, um, it means that Ukraine will be receiving tens of billions of uh, euros of, uh, of, of investment. And, 
and 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 you know many times that in private investment we will certainly do a, a post mortem after after the summit to to see what 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 has come out of it i don't think anybody has been advocating for ukraine to join while in the middle of a shooting war with let's not say Russia. everybody i think the, the sort of <laughs> well, Ukraine has been advocating for it. I mean, the, the, I mean the, the real question is of how how of a sort of credible expectation can there be offered to Ukraine that they will be joining at the earliest opportunity once the war is over in whatever form. Uh, look, in, in, in a certain sense, Ukraine already has more than membership because, you know, people misunderstand what uh, Article 5 says. Uh, it doesn't actually oblige you to go to war on behalf of, of the attacked country. It, it, it obliges you to react, and we've reacted pretty powerfully. So, so I wonder if you could spend a few, few minutes um, talking about, uh, I mean, one uh, dimension of, 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 of this debate about European strategic autonomy which you which you allude to in the in the in, in, in the piece which is the sense in some quarters but 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 I argue for for uh, a European defense policy worthy of its name in alignment with the United States without the gaullist overtones okay? well so that's exactly where I was uh, where I was getting with, with with this next question so so there are those in Europe who uh, for, for whom it has been a priority that that you have not only be able to act alone on its own independently but also that it does so autonomously of the united states which um, is a pipe dream both as regards capabilities and politically if you try to build europe's uh, defense identity uh, in opposition or even aloofness from the united states all you will achieve is you will split Europe. So could you could you talk us through the politics of this? So let's say there is a conflict between China and the United States. How does it play out? Just remember attitudes to the Iraq war. And remember, you know, people in Europe were pretty skeptical about the Iraq war. And yet half of the continent backed the United States. Um, all you would do uh, would be to uh, res resurrect the division into old Europe and New Europe. It has that disappeared, Roddick? I mean, really? I mean, it, it does, you know, the temptation to look at the Ukraine war through the old Europe, New Europe set of lenses is pretty tempting. Yes, because, you know, um, Ru Russia's great past status is not in doubt among old European capitals, whereas the independence and sovereignty of post-Soviet new states like Ukraine was a kind of new thing. And there's been a learning curve. Uh, you know, on the eve of this war, people were not sure whether the Ukrainians are actually a separate nation, that they would actually fight for their independence. I'm not sure all Ukrainians were certain. But now uh, the Ukrainian identity and the Ukrainian trademark it, you know, is the highest in history, and they've they've become um, uh, and and uh, you know the perception always lags behind reality, um, and uh, you know if you listen to the German foreign minister who says, well, we were wrong, we should have listened to the East Europeans on Nord Stream and a few other things, um, there is some uh, soul searching, and I and I I think it's genuine. Uh, there is also, of course, the business lobbies who would love to, to, to return to the old business model of 
you know, turning cheap Russian gas into expensive fertilizer and industrial gases and so on. Um, and, um, you know, and I, I try to explain to them that we could only do that if we have a, a, a democratic regime in Russia, actually. Uh, we can't do that with Putin. I want to add one more thing here to kind of conceptualize this relationship or the, the status of the EU the way you see it in relationship, of course, to the United States. But I think it makes a lot of sense looking at it, as you also do, in relationship to China. And I want to ask you the following question. On the one hand, we have adopted at the EU level something called uh, not decoupling but de-risking, and you yourself... Which I think is correct, by the way. Yeah, and you yourself make the case that we should where possible collaborate, um, but also compete and confront when necessary. But what we have seen has been, again, France and Germany, the culprits in, in many stories um, as the leaders um, uh, economically and politically, competing with one another, specifically Scholz and Macron, who is sending more CEOs to China. That, to me, is everything but de-risking. It's rather amplifying an economic dependent relationship that we have been building. So where does that leave us in relationship? Where does that leave the EU in relationship to the United States and in the eyes of Washington? First of all, uh, look at the differences. Um, the EU has no military capabilities in the Far East. You do. Um, as either EU or NATO countries, we don't have any legal obligations. You know, Korea, Japan are not actually, our, they're friendly states, but they're not our military allies. And remember, we are far more dependent uh, on both imports and exports to China than the United States. China is our biggest trading partner in goods. When you add services, the United States is much bigger. But in goods, it's China. And by decoupling, I mean the kind of uh, cliff edge uh, severing of relationship that we've just had with Russia in the sphere of energy. That, cost, that has cost us 1.5% 1, 1. of GDP. With China, it's not one sphere. It's several areas, and, and the volumes are much bigger. So. The disaster, uh, the economic disaster for Europe of a sudden decoupling would be much bigger. We would deindustrialize. We would become poorer from one year to the next. And de-risking means that, as I understand it, means not going to zero, but going down to acceptable levels. So from 90% to whatever, 30 or 40%, say in uh, rare earth uh, metals or or, or, or batteries on some, or some other key components. And, and, that, um, and to achieve that without um, impoverishing ourselves, what we should be doing is directing new investments elsewhere. And we are doing it, including, um, you know, we, are, we, are, we have our own CHIPS Act. We are, uh, you, you know, you and us, we found ourselves suddenly in the situation of depending on one huge CHIPS factory in, in Taiwan. 
How did that happen? Uh, you are addressing the problem. We are doing exactly the same. If I may just jump in at this point, I mean, well, that, that to me is part of the problem that you have these sort of parochial initiatives taking place in the United States, in the European Union, independently of each other, and sometimes creating frictions. In the well, parochial initiatives costing tens of billions of euros, yeah? Well, well, yes, but we would need precisely at this juncture something like, you know, TTIP, something like a much more sort of ambitious transatlantic trade and economic integration agenda. Because we are doing. I mean, in Poland, the chips factory is being built by uh, by Intel, you know. I mean, I mean, that, 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 that's fair. But but when you look at the you know, Europeans have been aggrieved for whatever reasons over the Inflation Reductions Act, sort of protectionist uh, ramifications for because it is protectionist. But I hope it's been sorted out. I understand that car, electric cars made in Europe will have the same uh, uh, rights and privileges as those made in NAFTA. If that's true, then we fixed the problem, but the problem was genuine. The problem was genuine, and I think it ref does reflect a certain sense of parochialism, which I think would be helpful to sort of overcome at the juncture when we, I mean, do realize there's a sort of collective West. Ah, uh, yeah, but then we would have to solve the issue of chlorinated chicken. I know, I know. And if we could solve that, we would have global free trade. And I remember talking about chlorinated chickens when I worked at AEI 20 years ago. You know, we've let the issue just just <laughs> completely, we've ignored the issue in ways that we shouldn't. Uh, so please come back to AEI. <laughs> Pick up the cudgel for chlorinated chickens. Before before we let you go, uh, one final question. So, so in the in this piece, you you run the reader through a fascinating thought experiment towards the end when he said when you say that uh, if Russia is soundly defeated in Ukraine, uh, this might send a message to Beijing that it's perhaps not worth their time and effort to try messing with the collective West because it won't work, but it might encourage China to you know, seek further, you know, concessions and influence in, in the Far East, including especially in to the north of China. And an idea of a, you know, Chinese-Russian conflict over territory or, or, or the Chinese sort of taking over parts of that sort of Russian dominion in the, in the, in the Far East might not be unthinkable, suggesting that, you know, this sort of seeming alliance between Beijing and Moscow is far more fragile and opportunistic than it than it seems. So, so could you sort of, you know, walk us through the logic of that? And, and you know, how likely do you see a sort of Chinese-Russian tensions uh, rising as, as this war uh, hopefully comes to a victorious end for Ukraine? The actual ideology of both China and, uh, and, and Russia is the same. Make China great again. Make Russia great again. Right. Um, except that that Russia is declining at, at an accelerated rate and and China, by comparison with Russia, is getting more and more powerful. And Russia's military presence in the Far East was insufficient, really, uh, even before this war. And if Russia stays under sanctions, whatever happens in Ukraine, the disparity will grow. And you are already seeing things that, that would have been difficult to imagine 10 years ago, namely China um, bringing back the usage of Chinese place names on the Russian side of the border in outer Manchuria. So Vladivostok is now described in China as Han Shenwei, which was its original name before the Treaty of Beijing of 1860, and one of the unequal treaties, 
under which uh, Russia grabbed that part of China. And uh, it was a result of the Second Opium War. And the Chinese remember it very well. What's happened on the 1st of June, just now, is that for the first time since the building of the port in Vladivostok, Hanshanvei, uh, Russia has allowed uh, Chinese export from uh, northeast China to go through that port. That's such a huge concession. I wonder what um, Putin got uh, in return. Or maybe he's even weaker vis-a-vis -vis China than we know. If I, if I may add to that, um, in the same vein of the data, um, China is also for the first time using uh, Russian ports in uh, the northern part on the coast of, um, of the Caspian Sea. To me, the only thing that Russia is not sharing yet and that China really wants is some parts of military technology with submarines and then also uh, the access to the Arctic. But how much can they hold off on that and how quickly is then Russia in this hypothesis that you seem to be sharing becoming indeed China's vessel. And one more th thing that China, well, two more things that China desires is A, Russia's gold reserves. Uh, China is clearly building up its stocks to one day become, to make yuan the reserve currency, and Russia has one big chunk that could be um, bought. And then secondly, uh, land with, you know, space for expansion and, and raw materials. Xi Jinping wants to um, uh, reinforce the legitimacy of the Communist Party and to um, uh, brand it to, 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 to make his um, name in Chinese history. So he will, of course, and of course Taiwan is, is what, he, what the Communist Party has promised the Chinese people. But one day they will have to make a calculation. Do we risk a world war over Taiwan? And it will be a real risk because Taiwan, you know, Japan, Korea, uh, Indonesia, Australia, um, uh, they cannot be sure that, um, that these countries would not come to Taiwan's aid. Or um, do we take uh, advantage of Russia's isolation and take another former Chinese uh, Chinese province, or, do, or, or you know, or do they do this the, their favorite thing, which is to try to take it over by osmosis or some blockade, or uh, and you know, Putin has entered a very uh, risky game with China. Well, that's a very happy note. Let's stop there. <laughs> that's one of the happiest notes we've ever had. We've had we've had. Chinese-Russian uh, border clashes within living memory. Let's, let's not forget that. You know, in communist Poland, we used to have this, this, this joke that um, the Chinese bombed a, 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 a peaceful Russian tractor plowing the fields and the tractor responded with fire. We will miss the Cold War in so many ways. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure, that, I'm sure Ukrainian black humor will arguably outdo... Uh, you know the, the the humor of the captive nations of past past years. Radek, thank you so much for joining us. Good. We need to let you get back to your business. From Dalvarohaj, Giselle Donnelly, and Yulia Zoza. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line, running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes, additional content on our website ai.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Please do get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod, written as one word. Don't forget to sign up for the Eastern Front's newsletter through the link included in the show notes to receive more content from the Eastern Front. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating and reviewing us. Thank you and goodbye.